That's the wrong song. What was wrong with that? It sounded fine. That's the wrong song, isn't it? I think that was the right song. Oh. It's 12 minutes long. You don't... You, uh, it might just go right in the middle of the track. <laughs> oh, wait. This is the wrong song. <laughs> Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, spiritual appreciator of the function of magnets, Jeremy Ruggles. Hello, Earthlings. My name is also Violent J. And of course, we're also joined by the world-famous bug guy, Peter Cook. Shaggy too dope in the house as well. Bugs. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> oh yeah, bugs are cool too. So yeah, there was a delay there because I was trying to read the next introduction underneath on the list and just like couldn't figure out how it was supposed to phrase it. So I had to skip and it was a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I thought I'd just really put you off with my ICP thing. No, I just in fact was not listening to you. So I'm sorry. Fine, I'm used to it. I'll never do it again. Jeremy will mention ICP again. Absolutely. That's fine. That's fair. It's it's a pretty relevant thing to mention these days. True. Why are we here? Do you guys want to you want to talk about a record maybe? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I love doing that. Is this podcast about that? Yeah, and you know how like sometimes when we're talking about music, we kind of dive into some like pretty heavy social commentary as well. I was thinking about doing some of that this episode too. Fitting. I just want to blow up fireworks, though. Well, I'm out here to uh, reclaim the legacy of important and underrated musicians, so that's what we are fully about on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. All right. I heard you were going to listen to some chamber music. Is that what you said? Very close. We are listening to the album, New Generation, from 1971, by the Chambers Brothers. Oh. Who, I'm going to say right now that the Chambers Brothers deserve to be listed amongst the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, especially the greatest psychedelic bands of all time. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you will all agree with me. I already agree with you. Perfect. All right. Well, let's dive in. How about we just go ahead and hear the first track off the album? Are you ready? I am ready. Are 
Sean. Yes, Jeremy. I'm not sure why you think this album from the 60s is relevant today. Well, for one thing, it's from 1971, so. Crap. <laughs> Which leads perfectly to my question I had for you guys. What, uh, what level of research and knowledge do you have about the Chambers Brothers? 20%. <laughs> I have, time has come today. I know that song very well, and I have the greatest hits. And right before we started, I read the short write-up by Dave Swaney that's on the back of that. That's about the extent of my knowledge on them. Honestly, I probably didn't have a ton more knowledge than that before this. They've been one of my favorite bands for a long time, and their classic album, Time Has Come Today, has was always one of those records working in a store where if someone came in and was like, I just I need a recommendation, I don't know what to buy. If we had that record in stock, there's a good chance I was going to recommend someone to buy it. Part of why we're not talking about that record is, one, I never actually bought a copy for myself because I was just always playing the store's copies and selling them and didn't realize I never bought one. And two, I think their other material is equally as good as that song and that album, and I've never heard anybody talk about their other material. So that's why we're going for a later record that I'm going to say is equally as good. And not only that, they don't have a bad album. Is from everything I've heard, this is a 100% flawless catalog of music from start to finish. Are they all as psychedelic as the material I know by them? No. They started as basically a folk slash gospel group, and some of their material is a little heavier in that direction. But their most famous material and the majority of their material does have a heavy psych rock influence going on throughout most of the tracks. Yeah, the, the back of the Greatest Hits says that they started, they were singing at the Mount Cavalry Baptist Church near Carthage in Lee County, Mississippi. So that must have been yep. when they were doing more folk-inspired stuff, gospel folk. Uh, actually, they were, they were playing folk and gospel for quite a while after that, and we'll kind of dive more into some of that with the bio. Yeah. But honestly, unless you guys have any other comments right now, we should probably just start going into the bio because, boy, I've got a lot of notes, a lot of things to talk about with this one, boys. Yeah, we can, we can get right into that. All right, let's just dive on in. The Chambers Brothers consist of four actual brothers. You got George Chambers on bass, Lester Chambers on harmonica, and then Joe and Willie Chambers both on guitar. They were all excellent singers and interchanged who was doing lead vocals throughout the, their careers later on when some of them were playing solo shows, pretty much all of them would just sing their songs and do the lead vocals. So Blood Harmony. All equally talented in that department. Oh yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, you want to quickly uh, talk about what Blood Harmony means? I think it's usually in reference to, or at least in my experience, it's like a country kind of term, but it describes the harmony between people who are siblings who've been singing together their whole life so they know each other's voices and kind of like uh, vocal patterns and little nuances the idios the Id yeah the nuances and idiosyncrasies of the other person's voice so well that they just like automatically adjust to it so there's this deep connective harmony that is pretty hard to replicate if you don't know someone that well 
I'd say the Wilson brothers and the Beach Boys definitely demonstrated that. Mm-hmm. I was first made aware of that term as the same place that you were probably, Jeremy. Uh, the Cocaine and Rhinestones episode about the Leuven brothers. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that while doing research for this record and listening to it. So yeah, the four Chambers brothers grew up in a family with 13 siblings in Mississippi. And a lot of the information I got is from an extended interview with Willie Chambers specifically. And he says that his all of his early memories of growing up in Mississippi with his family, even having like clear memories back to the age of one and two, said that his family was just always singing together. They worked a farm, did a lot of cotton picking. They would sing while picking cotton. As soon as work was done, they would come home and sing until everybody fell asleep. They sang at church together on Sunday. And they also listened to the radio, specifically the Grand Old Opry, on a regular basis. So there was a lot of gospel and country and folk roots to the music they were listening to and participating in. And a handful of the siblings were also involved in junior gospel groups in the area. They would just sing at church and maybe some of the local churches occasionally. And then in 1952, they had the thought that instead of all of them being involved in different projects here and there, they should combine forces and form a group that's just the Chambers brothers. Unfortunately, about a week after that decision, the oldest brother, George, was drafted into the Korean War. And that kind of put plans on hold for just a few years there. Oh, geez, that's like the early 1950s. Yep. Yep, 52. He was drafted. That changes my time scale of this band in my mind. Okay. What was your time scale? (laughs) I guess just by like the sound, I assume they were all like in their 20s. And they had like a fresh hip kind of vibe to it. But they must have been like late 30s, early 40s when this album came out then. Not necessarily, because they were all pretty young in 52. Willie talks about how in 52, when his older brother was drafted, he became responsible for the majority of the farm work because their landlord, a.k.a. slave owner, came to them and basically was like, well, I think I'm going to kick you guys off the farm and out of your house if you can't do the work. And he said he was 8, 10, something like that, like very young and told the landowner, I'm going to run this farm on my own. You can't kick us out, which is basically what he did. Damn. Wow. Yeah. So he's running the farm mostly by himself. He said his other brothers were either too young or too sick to help. His mom did all the cooking and also couldn't do much of the outdoor work. And his dad obviously helped as much as he could, but I think there was some injuries and sickness with his dad as well. So he said that the few years in the early to mid-50s when his brother was in the Korean War were the hardest of his life, and he wasn't quite sure how he was going to get through it, but he did. Yeah, there's just a whole lot going on with the family situation the more I looked into it. When you do, like, basic research on this group, read their Wikipedia and things like that, it seems pretty tame, pretty light, and then actually getting, like, the real story was, was really heavy to listen to, for sure. Yeah, you said slave owner? Yeah, so slavery was supposedly long abolished by this point, but that was replaced with the idea that all these people who were slaves were now working on their own, but still a lot of times working on the same plantations and for 
basically no money, which is what was happening with this family. They didn't own anything they were using with the farm. There was a landowner who owned the land that he gave them. He owned the equipment they were using, the house they lived in, and the the mules and work animals that they had. And he said that the family earned about $19 a year running this farm. And most years when it came time to pay up, the landlord would come up with these other expenses and things and usually ended with, well, you just broke even. Yeah, that's... So basically they were living on a farm that they could not leave, didn't own a car, had no ability to go anywhere, and didn't make money to do anything. And only just barely grew enough food to feed themselves. Because the setup was, the family that owned it owned like 150 acres and let the Chambers family farm about 30, 35 of them. The majority of that was cotton. And the landowner got 100% of the profits from the cotton and got half of anything else that they grew on the land. So it was literally impossible for them to get ahead in this scenario. He talks about how he still feels in some ways fortunate that they were in that situation because they knew a lot of families who were routinely beaten and abused physically and he said they were not however there was a constant threat of that which is why they eventually had to leave mississippi specifically right before george was drafted into the korean war he was having a hard time one day the animals were being stubborn and he was he said slapping around the mule trying to get him to work And the landowner saw him and basically threatened to kill him for this, but knew that he had been drafted into the Korean War and told him, as soon as you get back, we're going to deal with this. Wow. Mississippi, goddamn. For real. So the whole time George is in Korea, the family is secretly plotting to figure out how to relocate the entire family, plus cousins and extended relatives in the area, to California. And they've all been talking about how They're trying to figure out how to do this, but none of them are allowed to talk to any friends or anybody about this because if the landowner finds out, he still basically owns them. Like, not legally, not on paper, but the system that was running and, you know, who was in power, he could do whatever he wanted and not have any consequences. So what happens? So George gets back from the Korean War and basically tells the family, I can't stay here because I, I can't deal with this guy, and also there's a good chance that I'm going to be murdered if I stay here. A cousin of the family who had already moved to California previously had driven out and was visiting them, and the idea was that they were going to kind of figure out a game plan for getting out to California, but we're going to do it two years after that. They're kind of doing a long-term plan. And the cousin's visiting them. The landlord comes into their house, sees this car he doesn't recognize with California plates, walks in and is like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm just here visiting family. He's like, okay, that's fine. He's like, you're not here to take my N-words away from me, are you? And he's like, no, of course not. He's like, good, because they're mine. And if I knew that you were going to take them, I would kill you. Jesus Christ. So they they left for California that night. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, the Wikipedia is just like, oh, the brothers eventually relocated to California and started a a career in the music business. Like, actually, well, there is the so white, much more to that. <laughs> the whitewash Wikipedia. Oh, my God. The whitewashing with the Chambers Brothers story is just too real. It's insane. So he talks about how, yeah, they cooked food all day, packed up the essentials, loaded somehow the whole family into one station wagon, 
and then in the middle of the night pushed it down the road far enough so that the sound of the engine starting wouldn't wake up their landlord and then they drove to california never looked back man this could be a movie wow yeah yeah (laughs) the chambers family now lives in la and the four chambers brothers now reunited and able to realize their musical dream are starting to play the burgeoning folk scene in Southern California. They are starting to get a little bit of a following in the area and meet some pretty key, influential, more famous musicians such as Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Reverend Gary Davis, Pete Seeger, and Barbara Dane. They were particularly close with Barbara Dane, who I was not familiar with before this, but the, the songs I've listened to of hers were really good, and I'm interested to listen to more. One of the first times, if not the first, recorded evidence of the Chamber Brothers was a record that Barbara Dane asked them to do with her that was released in 1964. So they're continuing to gain a little bit of notoriety in the folk, blues, country scene kind of thing. Okay. During that time, a friend introduced them to a local white drummer who I couldn't get the name of. They hit it off musically and really liked blending their traditional sound with a little bit more upbeat drums and starting to play these songs faster and that started to catch on more in the early hippie movement in you know 1964 1965 that time frame this drummer again i couldn't figure out the name of they asked him to move into their practice space with the house that the whole family owned together was it brian keenan no no okay that's later yeah yeah he comes in just a little bit the this new friend moves into their practice space and a few weeks later about a month later this guy starts looking really unhealthy and sick and he's like losing weight and the band is really concerned that he's something seriously wrong with him so they ask him like what's going on and he then broke down crying and admitted to them that his family had raised him with the belief that if you fall asleep around black people they will definitely slit your throat holy shit jesus Yeah, and he basically hadn't been able to sleep a full night for a month living in this house with them. Wow. Wow, that is just... Which is crazy. Yeah. And then it's even crazier that the Chambers brothers didn't kick him out of the band. They were just like, no, let's talk about this. You've been living with us in a black neighborhood for a month and nothing's happened to you. Your fears are baseless. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, by now they were used to dealing with stuff like this, obviously. mm Mm-hmm. But still remaining positive with it and like still trying to put the effort to try and change these people's opinions, which is impressive. Mm -hmm. So in 1964, they had a kind of higher profile, semi-regular gig singing background vocals on the Shindig TV show. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that program. I used to watch it all the time as a kid. (laughs) <laughs> no nah. i mean i've just like seen it a couple times looking up live videos of artists from that time period but it was you know irregular format live tv performance they had a variety of different popular and up-and-coming acts on there they lost the gig when during an episode they were cutting that featured both jackie wilson and Smokey robinson when uh advertisers saw the episode they started complaining to the network that there was too many black people on the show and they were then replaced by a white backing vocal group to keep the advertisers happy my god it just doesn't stop oh it no it surely does not stop yeah we're not even to their their initial album right (laughs) yeah they haven't even put out a record yet 
1965, this is the part that I spent like the most time researching because it was just a fascinating rabbit hole to dive down. Uh, so in 1965, they were invited by their bud, Pete Seeger, to perform at the Newport Folk Festival. He, so they still had the same... Go ahead, but Pete, Pete Seeger, he's liberal, right? He's not going to do something really bad to them? No. No, we've, we've got nothing bad to say about Pete Seeger on this episode. <laughs> Good. Because I'm pretty sure anything bad to be said about Pete Seeger would be a goddamn lie. <laughs> Another saint... As far as I know. Anyway, Pete invited them to perform at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. They still had that same original drummer that we mentioned before. And right before going to the Folk Festival, he's like, hey, I want to go visit my family in Ohio. I'll meet you at Newport. They're like, okay, cool. He calls them. He's like, hey, can my brother come and hang at the festival with us? They're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Their drummer gets to the festival and then finds out that he's been put in a separate house from the rest of the band and then decides I'm being discriminated against. And literally him and his brother threatened to beat up the Chambers brothers because they think they're being racially discriminated by putting in a different house than them. These idiots didn't know reverse racism doesn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. So in case anybody was wondering that big Karen energy was alive and well in the mid sixties, nothing new. (laughs) No white fragility. It's just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. This was the rabbit hole I also got pulled into. I'll let you do the talking unless I have something cool, though. Okay. So this, that bizarre turn of events sparked a completely unforeseen further turn of events that we're going to get into now. So they quite obviously kicked their drummer out of the band and out of the festival at that point. And they're thinking, they really tried with him. Yeah. <laughs> they gave him more than a fair chance, I would say. So they're, they're thinking like, okay, you know, we've gotten really used to having a drummer in the band. It would be great to keep that energy going. And they approached the drummer, Sam Lay, who was playing with the Butterfield Blues Band at the festival that year. And they asked him if he would sit in during their set. Sam was super into it and was like, yeah, I'll do it. But then Paul Butterfield was like, I don't want anybody in my band playing with other groups. And then Sam was like, fuck you. I'm just going to play in whatever group I want to. So he does the set with the Chambers Brothers. And also, when they were assigned to do the Newport Folk Festival, they were asked to promise to not play their song Time Has Come Today because they wanted to, you know, keep it friendly, keep it low energy, keep it acoustic as much as possible. And they were fully planning on doing that, but they said when they hit the stage and just saw the the sea of people and the energy of the crowd, they're like, no, we have to play it. So they, they launch into playing this full you know, 10 minute heavy psychedelic version of this song, this, you know, anti-racism birth of the hippie movement song. And the crowd just goes crazy. The, the way they tell it, they instantly turn Newport into a rock and roll festival. They said <laughs> people were running from all areas of the festival, knocking down barricades, like ruining tents, trying to get to the stage where this crazy music was playing. And it was, it was an insane event. Yeah, they in- injected some much-needed revolution into the rather tame Newport Folk Festival. Do, do either of you know what the more famous 1965 Newport Folk Festival performance was? was it Dylan Goes Electric. Yep, yeah. the very same year. Not only was it the same After year, though. After the Chambers Brothers. It was the same day. 
the Chambers brothers went electric in the afternoon on Sunday night and Dylan went electric Sunday night. And somehow I've never heard the Chambers brothers performance talked about before this point. And everyone talks about how the Dylan performance is this amazing life changing birth of rock and roll moment. That it's just so great that he did it. I would like to say, I don't believe he was going to do that without the Chambers Chambers brothers making that decision a few hours ahead of time. <laughs> and did he then afterwards ask them to record Tombstone Blues with him, or had that already happened? Yeah, he ab- <laughs> no, he did after. So here, here's a couple key things here. Dylan had performed previous years at the Folk Festival. He'd also done some like acoustic workshops earlier in the weekend at this year's festival and was supposed to do an acoustic set. And from what people have said is that he made a last-minute decision to go electric, supposedly because he heard the promoter talking shit about the Butterfield Blues Band. However, the Chambers Brothers just did it, and people loved it. So I feel like there's absolutely no way Bob Dylan could have been there and not been influenced in his decision by the Chambers Brothers somehow. Yeah, totally. And finally... Remember how we said that they got the drummer from the Butterfield Blues Band and Paul Butterfield did not want him to happen? Yeah. The same drummer played with Dylan that night. Yeah. Wow. Dylan was was not planning to do that, and he literally just took the same formula, but it didn't work as well for him. Well, okay, so this is... I got down that rabbit hole after you sent that information, and I was like... That's crazy because everybody knows that Dylan goes electric at Newport Story, I assume. Mm-hmm. But reading into it, the year previous, Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Three also did an electric set there and Muddy Waters. And then, like you said, the Chambers Brothers and uh, Butterfield Blues Band played an electric set. And I started reading more about all of that and about the Dylan thing. And it sounds like the story of the Dylan thing has been totally misrepresented because they want like a tidy metaphor of like a changing of the guard because people actually there said that most people were cheering and only booed when like Dylan left the stage and they wanted him to play more. Right. And also... So Dylan played half of the set electric and then played the second half of the set acoustic. And did you watch that little interview clip with Pete Seeger from like the last few years of his life when he was on Democracy Now? I don't know if I've seen that clip. I've seen him talking about wanting to cut the power because it was bothering his father, Pete Seeger's father. That is an urban myth. Okay. So that that is also the popular story that they've, you know, neatly slightly change the details on to fit the narrative Jeremy's talking about with the Dylan set. The idea is that Pete Seeger was trying to cut the electrical cord with an axe because the music was so terrible and he felt that, you know, Dylan going electric was a violation to the art form. Uh, Pete Seeger himself has stated that that is simply not true and that he enjoyed Dylan's electric music. Also, he invited the Chambers Brothers in electric band to play that year. He said, I don't play electric instruments, but I enjoy other people that do it well. He wanted to cut the cord because the PA was terrible and it was ruining the performance. (laughs) Well, that's a completely different narrative than what I've heard. 
Yeah, he said that the PA system they had was only designed to amplify quiet acoustic acts. So when Dylan went up there unplanned with an electric band, the sound people had no idea what to do with it. And it was so distorted and terrible that it was like ear piercing and you couldn't understand anything that was being said. And he was like, this, it sounds terrible. It has to stop. And that was his only beef with it. And he was like, I love electric Dylan stuff. Those are some of my favorite records. Wow. Yep. Setting the record straight here on I Buy That. Yep. Exactly. This is the new section we call For the Record. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. The story just keeps going from here, though. Dylan is super impressed by the Chambers Brothers set, and the proof is that he then invites them to come back to a studio session for the album he's in the middle of recording, Highway 61 Revisited. And he got them to record backing vocals on the song Tombstone Blues. However, that version did not go on the album because Bob Dylan's producer told him that the Chambers Brothers were too good at singing and had perfect harmony and would make him look bad because he wasn't a good singer. <laughs> I, I listened to that version. I did get a chance to check that out before we started recording. And, you know, it, it sounded a little weird to me at first because it was so unexpected and I know that song so well, but it was pretty awesome. Yeah, and the, the only version I could find is a very rough edit because, I mean, they never did anything with it. They recorded the take and then decided they weren't going to use it. I imagine if they put the same level of work into finishing it with the Chambers Brothers on backing vocals, it would have been really cool. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think that was the same take from the album, and they just removed their vocals. I think it was a different performance. Oh, the, it definitely was of the song yeah. during that studio session. Dylan apologized that they weren't going to be able to use the song and said he wanted to still hang out with the group, and he took them to a a local discotheque, and then Bob Dylan supposedly like pulled the manager aside and was like, hey, I've got this great new band. You should let them go on stage and play a few songs. But like, didn't tell the Chambers brothers that. <laughs> so they said they're just they're just chilling with Bob Dylan. Oh, and all man. of a sudden the announcer was like, and we have special guests in the night tonight, the Chambers brothers. And they're just like, uh, fuck. Like, <laughs> we play gospel songs and we don't have a drummer. Like, people can't dance to our music. Like, what are we going to do right now? And by chance, the local band that had been, or I don't know if they were local, but the band that was actually scheduled for the night's performance had a drummer named Brian Keenan in the group. So they approached him and were like, hey, we're supposed to go play songs. We don't have a drummer. Will you sit in with us? Which he did. And then he stayed with the band all through their original run up until 1972. Far out. Beautiful. Yeah. Just such a weird series of music industry coincidence that sparked all of this well sean i'm gonna recommend we play it we should probably play another track soon i was just thinking the same thing let's play another track how about track three from side a this is a song called funky and hopefully a lot of our listeners will recognize the sample from hip-hop
my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. That's right. Tribe Called Quest fucks with the Chambers Brothers, and you should too. If you needed an, any more endorsement, Tribe is down. Exactly. You know who else sampled the song Funky? Who's that? I got a little research here, boys. Ooh, hit me with that research. Prince made an unreleased song called Funky where he sampled that same sample from Funky that uh, Tribe Called Quest used. Wow. Did he do it before or after? Do you know when it chronologically fell? He did it slightly after, and the thing I was reading, they weren't sure if he had heard it, but presumably he had. But he layered on some trumpet solos from Miles Davis and was trying to get Miles Davis to agree to release it or something, and Miles Davis had no interest in it. (laughs) Sounds about right. Then... Then a few years later, the new power generation recorded a straight-up cover of that song, too, uh, that was never released. Yeah, I'm wondering, who who would you say musically, this is 1971, I feel like that's the same year as There's a Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone, and Funkadelic were just starting to put out albums around that time, and I'd say there's some similarities to those groups, but this is definitely its own thing. I actually had it in my notes that the argument could be made there would be no Sly and the Family Stone or Funkadelic without the Chambers Brothers. So yeah. I'm glad that you already named them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing some similarities. Those are two of my favorite groups of all time. And why haven't I been listening to the Chamber Brothers as well? The Chambers Brothers. Yeah. Yep. And also Prince, too. I mean, we've talked a little bit before about the difficulties facing black artists who don't play what white people view as traditional black music. And that was something the Chambers Brothers dealt with a lot, being a rock band. Uh, They said in an interview that they would regularly hear people come up to them at concerts and say, man, if only you guys were white, you'd be the biggest band in the world. Jeez, if they needed any more backhanded compliments. Woof, right? Yeah. Yeah, they said they would get that a lot, and then they would also get, you know what you guys should do? You should get a backing band to play your music. You should put on some nice suits and play places like the Apollo. You'd be a lot more successful. It's like, how about you go fuck yourself? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whoa, we got a swear out of Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Peter's getting upset. Let's go through some more uh, biographical history of the legendary Chambers Brothers. Yeah. We just left off right after the Newport Folk Festival, and due to their amazing success with that and their growing fan base in California, they suddenly were getting potential record deals from virtually every major label that existed at that point. Fantasy wanted them on the label, Columbia, uh, Capital, Motown even offered them a record deal. And the thing they found out Every single record deal, including Motown's, was the exact same. $500 a person, plus a car and wardrobe, no royalties. They literally turned down every single offer flat and decided that they were going to be a DIY band because they were making enough money touring and they didn't want to get fucked over by a label. Whoa. Yeah. 
So they had decided that we don't need to put out records. We're just going to keep being a band like this. And then they ended up getting signed to Columbia Records because a producer by the name of John Hammond convinced them to give them a better offer. Are either of you guys familiar with John Hammond at all? Yeah, that name is very familiar. Didn't did see? I get it. I think John Hammond, and then I think of the Hammond organ, and I don't know that they're at all connected. <laughs> he the name sounded a little bit familiar to me. I did a, a little bit of research into him. He's a, I guess, an infamous record producer, and he's specifically responsible for fighting for a lot of artists that the label was trying to drop. Um, Bruce Springsteen is one of the big ones. And uh, he was kind of the guy at Columbia that was pushing for more interesting artists and thing, people that were considered to be more of a risk. And a lot of the people he was fighting for at that point are now, you know, legendary household names. I think I know his name associated with Bob Dylan. Yeah, yep. He was buds with Dylan as well. I mean, he might have even had some, had some involvement with Arthur Russell. Yes, he did. He did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've just been reading up on Arthur Russell recently. I'm finally coming around to understanding the genius there. Mm, there's there's a lot to dive in on with Arthur Russell. Yeah, but I don't want to distract from the Chambers brothers here. So yeah, everything seems great. They got a better deal that, while it didn't include any royalties, it did include some very large upfront payments, and they were able to buy their parents a house, something they'd been promising them they were going to do since they were four years old, basically. They, they said that when they got their checks, they called their parents. They're like, hey, go pick out a house. We're buying it for you. And they're just like, yeah, okay, sure. And they called them back a week later. I was like, do you get the house? They're like, wait, you weren't joking? <laughs> wow. And they're like, yeah, we have money. We've made it. We're buying you a house. Go pick it out. Aww. So everything's going great. And then they go to the signing party that Columbia Records throws them. He said it was lavish room. All the big wigs of the label are there. Everyone's like, we're so happy to have you. We're going to make hit records. It's going to be awesome. And then Clive Davis, the owner of Columbia Records, on his way out, stops and turns around and says to them, by the way, you can't put out that song, Time Has Come Today, because, quote, we don't do that kind of shit here. Oof. Yeah. Which basically means that... They were just entering a time where white people could make songs about anti-racism, such as Bob Dylan, but black people were not allowed to be a part of that conversation, which is why Bob Dylan is still alive and Sam Cooke is dead. Ooh, man. The band was totally thrown off. At this point, it's the only new style song they have that they think is going to be a hit. Everything else is basically just renditions of gospel standards that they know is not going to make them a hit record so they don't know what to do and then they talk to the producer that's been assigned to him by the name of david rubinson and he agrees to help record the song in secret because he knows that it's a good song as well so the plan they come up with is they schedule the studio time and the first thing they do they get all the mics set up and he says you've got one shot to record this we can't listen to it we can't overdub it we can't edit it you've just got one shot record it and we sneak it onto the album which is what they did, and it worked. That's one take? That's one take. The first time the Chambers Brothers or anybody else involved with this record heard the song Time Has Come Today is when the vinyl was pressed. <laughs> oh wow. my gosh. Yeah. And Clive was so upset with this that he fired every single person that was involved with that session. Like, the band was still signed, but he fired the engineers, the producer. He fired 
the custodians who unlocked the building for him. He was pissed about it. And the other thing he did is he then took their song, Time Has Come Today, and put fake people as the writers on it so that he could steal all of the credit for the song. You're really outing, a, a, you're really outing some of the people that we've talked about on the show previously. Clive Davis, I'm pretty sure we talked about him on the Andy Pratt episode, but Andy didn't deal with anything like this to my knowledge. Well, I'm sure Clive was a real sweetheart to him, yeah. Yeah. Damn. They get the record, they see that their names are not on there, and they're like, that's fucked up, you can't do it to us. So, Willie and Joe storm Clive Davis's office and tell him that he has to recall all of the records and change who's listed as the songwriters, which they actually convinced Clive Davis to do, but as a result, Clive held a grudge against the band for the rest of their career and is almost single-handedly responsible for ruining them in some ways. God, I mean, if he had, if he had enough power in the industry, he may very well be responsible for their narrative and all these stories that we're talking about being left out even. That's entirely possible. He definitely had that power. He was like the guy in that era. Yeah. Yeah, so the the band has talked about how you know, they watch this song rise to rise in the charts and they're getting tons and tons of airplay and their concerts are going really well and people are loving their music but clive davis every time they call him he was like nope you don't get a studio session we're not promoting your work so even though they were able to still release records there was no promotion behind it and clive was trying to intentionally bury all of their work which is why no one's ever heard of other records by this band wow shit yeah they still managed to get through that. They were saying they were getting over a million dollars a year in the late 60s just for touring. And he said, people always ask us why the Chambers Brothers break up. You know, they were such an iconic group. You know, if you see like a montage of 60s things, there's a good chance Time Has Come Today is going to be the backing track. Like it's yeah. been in like over 600 soundtracks and things like that. Yeah, I think every year I hear it used in something. Definitely. Their career ended because of the Kent State Massacre in 1970. They said that almost all of their touring was at universities because it was the only venues that would have them. They were not allowed to tour in any Jim Crow venue. They couldn't play the South because they were a biracial band. You could tour the Jim Crow circuit in the South if you were a black band and played by their rules, but if you were biracial, you just couldn't come. Once the Kent State Massacre happened, all colleges ended hosting any events or performances or anything. And they said all of a sudden, like almost 100% of their income was just gone. So the Kent State Massacre was the end of the Chambers Brothers and the beginning of Devo. (laughs) Yeah, basically. What a weird turning point in history. Yep. Their manager then sees the writing on the wall that this band can't afford their expenses of, you know, their road crew, et cetera, and everything that goes along with the band. So his decision is he goes to their three headquarters, one in L.A., one in New York, and one in Canada, and steals everything he possibly can, jewelry, furniture, et cetera, et cetera, and then disappears, and the band never hears from him again. So virtually overnight, all of their income and all of their possessions are gone. So there's looting... There's violence by police, and there's blatant racism. I'm starting to see some relevance here, Sean. 
Yeah. Am I answering your initial question over the course of 45 minutes? I think you've done it. Okay. Yeah. It's it's making sense now. So the album we are listening to right now, New Generation, came out in 1971 and was in some ways kind of their last ditch effort to keep their career going. I think that's probably why you hear a lot of like string sections and things in this album that weren't on the rest of their albums. They were always kind of more of a raw sound. They didn't use studio musicians. They were very proud of the fact that they played everything that they wrote, both live and in the studio. But, you know, you were starting to see more examples around this time period of bands having, you know, success of just being studio bands. So that's what they tried to do with this record, and it still didn't work, probably because Clive Davis still had it out for them. They also have an unreleased album from 1972. They were trying to put out one more record um, after this one that was called Oh My God, and Columbia has to this day never released it. Dang. We should uh, so, get it out of there. Yeah, I want to hear it. You can find like two of the songs being performed live in some videos, and it's it's cool music. I'm sure it would be just as good as everything else they did because, as we've already established, they have a perfect career of music. A lost gem, lost treasure. Yep. So yeah, the band broke up in 72. Um, they all went their separate ways. They all stayed involved in music in different ways. They've guested with other bands, done production stuff, side musicians on various records, but never recaptured the same level of success that they had in the late 60s, obviously. In doing the research for this, I was reminded of how Lester Chambers was in the news a little bit in the in 2012 and 2013. I don't know if either of you guys remember this, but during the Occupy movement, Lester Chambers had posted a picture with this statement attached to it. I am the former lead singer of a 60s band. I performed before thousands at Atlanta Pop, Miami Pop, Newport Pop, and Atlantic Pop. I did not squander my money on drugs or a fancy home. I went from 1967 to 1944 before I saw my first royalty check. The music giants I record with only paid me for seven of my albums. I've never seen a penny in royalties for my other 10 albums I recorded. Our hit song was licensed over 100 films, TV, and commercials without our permission. One major TV network used our song for a national commercial and my payment was $625. I'm now 72, trying to live on $1,200 a month. And then talks about a uh, charity that was being raised to help him, which, from my understanding, after this raised him about $70,000, which helped him record a new album and pay some bills. And then uh, it ends with, only 1% of artists can afford to sue. I am the 99%. Ooh. And then the other thing he was in the news for in 2013 was he was performing a solo set at a blues festival. And this was right after Trayvon Martin was shot. So he was performing the Chambers Brothers version of the Curtis Mayfield song, People Get Ready. And he dedicated it to Trayvon Martin and was then assaulted by a white woman who was screaming, you are the problem, while she was beating him. I don't even know what to say to that right that's just like self it's just self-explanatory hypocrisy i just don't know yeah yeah i mean like i remember hearing that story in 2013 and just being like so just sad and disgusted by it but then like 
just really putting it in the context of their whole career, it's like, man, like these guys are so cool. And it just, it just kept happening and they're not alone in that in any way. Yeah. And honestly, it's hard to, it's amazing that they can just, uh, push forward but like you said it's it's not uncommon i feel like it's a lot of people's story it, a lot of black people people of color you don't see this any of this stuff in, in their bios unless you dive it sounds like you found this diving deeper all, a lot of this stuff yeah this was a interview that you can find on youtube that i think was recorded about 10 years ago but just posted about a year ago i will say that it is one of the like poorest quality interviews i've ever seen as far as like the recording quality and editing but the information was amazing and i'm really glad i got to get this like firsthand account on what was going on because when i first started doing research i was like okay so they were a band they sang in church they had some hits they fell apart same story as everybody else it's just there's so much more going on and i gotta imagine it's a similar case for a lot of these artists i'm sure not everybody is comfortable telling their story to that degree knowing that, you know, they're still going to deal with this violent racism for their entire life. Yeah, and we're so obsessed with white people with the tortured artist, and usually it's not even that big a problem. It's like their girlfriend broke up with them and they're tortured. Right, right. And But we don't want to hear about this problem. Yeah. Literal torture. Yeah. Right, right. Whew. Well, you guys want to listen to another song real quick? Let's listen to some music now! <laughs> How about uh, Side B, Track 1, Reflections? I see a reflection
how about that song, huh? I've kind of always thought that my main, the, the main thing that makes a song a good song for me is how genuine it feels. If you can really feel that the artist is putting a piece of themselves into the music, and I don't necessarily care what genre it is. And man, the Chambers Brothers, that is some genuine music. I felt like they were perhaps trying to reference music from a few years back, what would have been a few years back at that point, like Ben E. King. I think there's some deliberate uh, sonic allusions to Stand By Me in there, perhaps. But it kind of feels almost like it's supposed to be a bridge, and it almost sounds like the strings are then almost spiraling out of control at some points going into the future. Did you get that vibe at all? Yeah, that was kind of the critique I'd seen of this record from some reviews, like, oh, it's jumbled and doesn't make sense. But I feel like that's the point yeah. of this record. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's very kaleidoscopic, kind of like the cover on the album. Yeah. You want to describe that cover for us, Jeremy? Well, firstly, my eye is drawn to the giant Sharpie WNRV because <laughs> Sean clearly stole this from the record station WNR radio station WNRV. <laughs> the record station. I did not steal it, but this uh, brings up a record collecting pro tip that I can drop on everybody real quick. If you ever find a record for a reasonable price and you have never seen it before, you don't know what it is, and it has radio station stuff written on it, usually it's a Sharpie across the top or it'll be a little sticker with a mini review, just buy it. It's probably going to be really good because the stuff that got sent to radio stations, especially college radio stations, was the stuff that wasn't hitting other places and they were trying to desperately figure out how to, how to get an audience for it. It usually wasn't hitting because it was too weird, which is why they sent it to college radio stations thinking that hopefully the college kids will understand this weird shit and buy it. College kids like weird shit. Yep. My Chambers Brothers Greatest Hits comes from WMUK, November 18th, 1971. It has the stamp on it in the back, on the back. Yeah, well, and like we said, you know, the touring the college circuit was their main source of income, so it would make sense that these records were at every college radio station in the country. Jeremy, do you want to describe the cover more to us beyond that detail? Yes. <laughs> uh, it sort of has a sort of like a mandala. Is that what they call those? The, like, colorful sand things? It has that kind of look to it, or kaleidoscope, like you're looking right into the kaleidoscope. And then it's hyper-colorful, detailed pictures with lots of trippy people's faces and topless ladies and alien-looking things and... It's uh, very far out. It leans into the psychedelic side of their sound. Yeah, they weren't shying away from this. Totally. And what's the back cover look like? The back cover, we've got, it looks like bleachers. Maybe four or five rows of bleachers. And about a hundred uh, mostly younger people of of uh 
varying races all like uh, hanging out and excited and ready to jam with the Chambers brothers, I'd say. Probably out of college. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I suppose you could kind of draw some comparison similarities to the idea of a kaleidoscope, a psychedelic kaleidoscope, and then the varying degrees of humanity that walk the earth. I feel like that might be what they were getting at. Also, the people are younger probably because the album is called New Generation. Ah, conceptual. Yep. Which, in context, is really interesting too. Like, these guys are broke at this point completely. They are in debt to a label that hates them and have been robbed and probably don't have a future. And instead of making a like depressed record, they're still making one that is inherently hopeful in a new generation and the movement that's happening. Yeah, I was going to say that about the last track, but then you guys said other things. But you can hear the optimism in the song, like mixed with the kind of pain a little bit. And like, it was very potent and very shockingly optimistic, I guess, now knowing the context around all of it. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been our discussion on the Chambers Brothers. Hopefully you all agree now that this is one of the most important and cool rock bands of all time and that their influence on the music industry was huge. Like we said, they were a biracial band fusing soul and blues and funk and psych before Sly Stone and before George Clinton were. Yeah, I had no idea just, you know, how much they had really contributed to that. They've definitely jumped above the Doobie Brothers and Righteous Brothers and Blues Brothers, or those were your brothers' bands you were... Oh, yeah. Why weren't they included in that the other day? list? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? Chambers I mean, Brothers they're... are top. Yeah, I mean, they can't be compared because that would just be unfair to literally any other band. Yeah, presume number one. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Aside from the Chambers Brothers, rank these bands. <laughs> These brothers. Because if you don't put Chambers Brothers as number one, then we just can't talk ever again. Yep. New rule. Exactly. Well, you boys got any closing thoughts before we play this final title track from the album? I think you said it. I think we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we often lately we've been talking about similar artists that you might find in a dollar bin, but I just don't know if there's anyone on par. Yeah, just just go buy every Chambers Brothers record. Yeah. Well, what are we going to go out on, Sean? What are we going to leave? We're going to go out with? on we're going to go out on the title track. This is a uh, a little bit more in the vein of Time Has Come Today. It's a nearly 12-minute long track, a lot of repetition, a lot of high energy, some crazy psychedelic rock going on. And still maybe the best track on the album. It's so good. I love every song on here. Like picking the, which songs I wanted to listen to was tough because I just want everyone to hear every song on this album. Yeah. Like the last song going to the mill is this amazing stripped down traditional gospel thing with tons of like natural reverb. It's awesome, but we got to play the title track. It's so good. So we're going to go out on that. Thanks for listening. Well, this has been, I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter cook. My name's Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. Come let us gather
We appreciate you listening to this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Did you enjoy that? We hope you did. If you liked it and you want to help us out, you could do us a big favor by leaving a review. It would really help us out. And you can also tell a friend. Word of mouth is still the best form of advertisement. So tell the new generation about I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you for your support. Bye.